This episode of the What the Fintech podcast is brought to you in partnership with the London Institute of Banking and Finance. Hello and welcome to another brand new episode of What the Fintech, the podcast from the team behind Fintech Futures and the Banking Technology Magazine. My name is Paul Hindle, editor at Fintech Futures, and for this episode, we're joined by Helene Panzerino, director of the Centre of Digital Banking and Finance at the London Institute of Banking and Finance. Helene, welcome to the show. Very nice to be here. Thank you very much. I love the title. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, well, we, we wanted the name to to stand out, and we think that it has four seasons in and uh, still going strong, so it can only be a positive there. Thanks again so much for coming on the show this week, Helen. Just to get started, would you like to quickly let us know a bit more about yourself then and the work you've been up to at LIBF? Super, yes, at LIBF. I was at the inception of the Center for Digital Banking and Finance, which was a great way for us to bring a 140-plus-year-old institution into the digital world, and it's been a really enjoyable and successful ride, helping to bring academic rigor in the topics that are impacting banking, financial services, and fintech with industry expertise and whether that's guests or fireside chats or things like the podcast because i do the lbf podcast as well it's a wonderful way to bring all of my skills together from years of being in the industry working with growth companies on the on, and on funding sides of them and also i still do work on some of the tech side i've got a couple of other positions like board of a digital bank and a digital banking platform in India as well. And also recently, I've started on the longevity side of my life, working as a trustee at the International Longevity Center. So very exciting. Excellent. Very exciting. Yeah, sounds quite busy as well, I think. That's very true. Never a dull moment and never an hour to spare, she says. <laughs> Excellent. Well, yeah, th- thank you again for taking the time out to, to come on the show and speak to me then. But yeah, so I mean, on the show this week, we'll be taking a look at financial vulnerability, which has become a growing issue in the UK amid the cost of living crisis, rising interest rates and various other macroeconomic factors. We'll discuss what financial institutions need to change to ensure they understand the needs of vulnerable consumers and what they should be doing to protect them, as well as take a look at the FCA's consumer duty regulation as well, which has come into play recently to push for more consumer protection in financial services and the impact that that might have. So that's all to come a bit later, but as always, to get us started is our news in numbers segment. This is where our guest has gone out and found a new story featuring an interesting number to discuss. So Helene, what have you brought along for us today? Perhaps not entirely unrelated to the meat of the matter today. This story is about the FCA warning consumers against loan fee fraudsters, and don't say that very quickly if you've had a couple of drinks, amid rising summer borrowing. So all of that in terms of, it does link back to the wider economic situation and also the FCA, new consumer duty. But in this piece about consumer borrowing peaking over the summer, the FCA is taking strong stance against credit scammers. I had it sent shivers up my spine because it took me back to 2008 or maybe more precisely 2009, 2010. After the calamity, then you have the fallout. And I wholly expect that in this year, end of this year, next year, we will see some of the fallout from what we've seen post-COVID and what's happened in the economy at large. And it, it pains me deeply. It takes me also back to my childhood when finances were difficult for my parents and they were falling prey to scammers in terms of loan sharks and all that kind of thing. But in the numbers on, in this particular piece, 24% of consumers are planning to turn to credit to fund their summer spending this year, which I think is up 26% on last year. And 55% are consumers are worried about their finances this summer than they were the year before, 
which is a significant increase. And I'm going to throw in some extra numbers to this. Bank of England stats from May, around May, June time, that 4.6 billion pounds additional debt or additional finance that families took on to help with the current financial crisis. And back to the article again, where we see that the average fee that people are being scammed when they shouldn't be paying any fees for these, these loans is 260 pounds. So there were lots of very bad, disturbing figures for me in this. People are looking for help. They're the most vulnerable people in financial terms, and they're being tricked basically into paying up front for something they don't have to pay for. And the FCA is now, well, they've known about it and they've been aware, but now they're actually trying to be more upfront about warning consumers. I don't think that most consumers in general will go Google the FCA website, so that's good. And also send out a warning to the scammers because this type of scam and fraud with the current crisis, and you mentioned it with inflation, yes, it's gone down a little bit today in some terms, with food prices rising, petrol, everything that's involved in it. And I think there's a general also uneasiness about, for example, like the health service. I think most people are thinking, well, we're moving towards a hybrid model. I'm going to have to pay for some of that. Have I all the savings that I made during COVID, have I now run them down because I'm trying to do that on a cost of living? Have I used things like buy now, pay later, which I will come back to later in this when I talk about disruption, um, buy now, pay later for paying for my weekly shop, which is just crazy. You don't want people to get to that. And desperate times make people do desperate things. And there's an element of additional undeserved and unwarranted shame when you're in this situation and you think I need to make these payments, I just don't see another way. I fall outside of anything that is traditional in terms of credit. I'm being approached. I see these things, they come up, they pop up. Maybe I see them on social media. I'm going to go for it. I'm going to make this payment because I'm going to get more money that I need to do something. And in the end, you don't get anything, but you have a, a wider loss. And I do, I find it really just, it tears me up this type of thing. Yeah, no, I completely understand. And interesting, you mentioned there about the communication side of things as well. A lot of the numbers discussed by the FCA in this action, they're focused on the summer, but we're already into August now. So it might not have the impact it ought to have, might be a bit late, to be honest with you. Do you think it's enough or does more need to be done when it comes to communicating these initiatives and educating the wider population? Yeah, it's a really good point because I think one of the other problems with data in general is the lag in getting data, for example, to the FCA or to other regulators and bodies, you know, if there's a 30-day lag in actually getting real-time data and some other reg tech, sub-tech companies might be able to help there, by the time you get it and do something with it, then you're right, it is further down the line. Look, I think Citizens Advice, the money charities, anyone who's possibly collecting any kind of benefit should get warnings from this. If you have a bank account, of any kind, even if it's a basic or otherwise, and you should get some communication from your bank. And I know we'll talk about financially vulnerable customers as well and what banks should be doing in a way that, I go back to that same thing, that doesn't make you feel embarrassed or like you've done something wrong, but it's communicated to you in a way that is that makes you want to take action. The difficulty, and I, again, go back, I go back to that last financial crisis and I go back to my own experience of watching people when those letters pile up or the emails keep coming in or the phone calls keep coming, you don't open them the longer time goes on. And so the situation actually gets worse in some ways. So 
little and often in terms of financial education, reminders, options. Yes, that would be better. I think if you are watching things on terrestrial TV or any other online, that every financial expert or guru is telling people, this is a problem. This is what you should do. You should look out for the scams, but the scams have become so, so sophisticated. I defy anyone to tell me that they haven't fallen prey at least once, no matter who you are, because they are so sophisticated. And the UK has a little bit of a scamageddon reputation in Europe and in globally. And I know there's a task force that's been put together to deal with that as well. But it just adds another element to the problem for these folks. And one final number from this piece as well. There was said that the FCA said there was twenty six percent increase in complaints received over the summer of twenty twenty two compared to twenty twenty one. Would you be hopeful that initiatives like this one we can start to maybe see a decline now? Or do you think that actually twenty twenty three, given how the economy's been this year, actually we might still see a rise this year and then maybe next year hopefully things might start easing off or what's your take on that? I'd have to agree with the latter. I think it's still gonna people are still gonna need to find a solution. And not everybody will be getting the message. So yes, it's great that people are cognizant of the fact that you know, complaints are happening and that they're making complaints, but because what's the alternative? Unless you can find another way to fall within somebody's credit scoring that will give you something, or you find out about something that might be available that's a grant or that's a, another form of finance, there will be a lag inevitably, so it's probably next year. So I think we can take us into the main topic of discussion then for this podcast and financial vulnerability to start with, how would you best describe financial vulnerability then? What characteristics and factors does that kind of take into account? Well, I suppose in general, we need to look at customers who due to a circumstance, and that might be a physical, like a health circumstance, a financial circumstance, a work-related circumstance, a combination of all of them, an understanding of finances have fallen into a situation where they are more likely to be susceptible to additional financial harm or financial harm now and adding to it. And it's everyone's responsibility, although you know we're probably mostly talking about what the banks and other financial providers need to do, to act, to take appropriate action early enough to mitigate additional harm and to help people find support and find their way through this. And whether that's with the way that their employees understand what financial vulnerability is. And there's a big problem around what financial vulnerability means, because I think generally people get this image of older people being, again, go back to scam, being vulnerable, but actually anyone can be financially vulnerable at any time. And so we need to widen that discussion and educate people to that. Once you know that, what do you do? How do you change your product or your service? In order to respond, it's difficult because you're taking, you need a personalized response more or less for something that really we normally deal with in bulk when we're looking at products and services in financial institutions. How do you communicate that? I read something the other day saying that 80% of customers for banks still don't understand what they're reading in the jargon that comes with their banking agreements or their notifications online as well. And then not just to start the process, but how do you continue to monitor that? Because It's great if you refer somebody to a money charity, for example, or a debt charity, and you think, tick, I've done that. I've taken care of that person's getting help. But if you then don't stay in touch with the person or the charity, 
or if it's a health problem with the medical staff, how do you know what's gone on after that? That could just be escalating. So there are areas that the financial institutions or the fintechs or anybody, IFAs, anybody involved in this chain uh, need to take into consideration, but they have to go back to understanding that this, the whole idea of financial vulnerability could be, I wound up getting a terrible illness, I, my marriage fell apart, I lost my job, and I really only understand a basic, uh, I have a basic understanding of what's going on. I don't have a really detailed understanding of my finances. I have enough to get by. Could all happen at the same time. Or you could get a, an illness that could last for a year and be off work and maybe not have family around you who support you, who can communicate with everyone. And I don't think these are rare instances, particularly after what happened with COVID. Because we see also just yesterday, the reports from the news stations saying how many people are still out on long-term illness and not gone back into the workforce. And of course, we need them back in the workforce as well, because that will impact inflation. But that's not an insignificant thing to think that somebody could be off for a long time. And there are other areas of their life. Everybody was put on, on some kind of furlough or their jobs changed, lost jobs, you know, so the, also from a finance point of view, it's very complex. I think people thought it was just, like I said, older people, people who have obvious problems, and they're vulnerable. I do have to have some sympathy, for example, customer service teams, because they're not psychologists or psychiatrists or medical doctors, but they may be the front line in the discussion with someone who's vulnerable. I think the other thing is that people don't like identifying as vulnerable necessarily, or may not be aware that they are vulnerable. I know enough, but you know, most people might not. Yeah, I mean, you've touched on some there, but I mean, what would be some of the wider consequences of this and how much of an issue is this becoming now in, in the UK? Yeah, and I think a little anecdote, and this is maybe about, well, this is actually probably about a year and a half ago, speaking to one financial institution in the UK, let's say they had about 15 or 16 million customers. And the question came up and well, how many do you think are vulnerable? Could be 2 million, could be 3 million, don't know. <laughs> that was before we really got into the thick of things. I think the percentage is much higher than people would anticipate for all the reasons I said. It's not something that's you know beyond our comprehension that somebody would get ill and lose their job or they would have to move home or they're not as resilient. For example, if you're in the self-employed brigade, if you lose a contract and you can't get another one back, it doesn't mean that you don't understand your finances. It just means that you are now not as resilient as you were when that first contract was put in place. And that could come from the economy. And at the same time, you could be having to downsize and be unwell. So I think that it's a bigger problem than people think. I think it's going to get bigger as we see all the safety nets from COVID disappear. And that applies to sole traders and business owners for me as much as it does to individuals because they are all people and they have personal lives as well. So I think we will see more of that. It's great that we're aware, like we weren't in the last financial difficulty, and people did lose their homes, and they did sometimes lose their lives, and their lives were uh, very much disrupted. I think now there's possibly more of an understanding from a financial institution that this benefits the customer, but thereby benefits you as the financial institution. The longer they stay with you, the stronger they are, the better customer they can, the better that is for your bottom line, for example, or other products that can be sold. That doesn't mean that if you don't tend to them, and if we go back to the original piece on the numbers, 
you are open to scams. You are open to financial abuse. You are open to being excluded from some financial products and services. You disengage because you're embarrassed and so you don't actually want to come forward and renegotiate something, for example. You don't actually get involved. You are exposed to mis-selling products as we were back in the loan fees. You're indebted to a point where you can't service the debts. So all of the harms, more or less, that the FCA outlines as potential harms are very easy to understand how this could happen to somebody if you are not doing what you need to do to identify them and support them. Yeah, and completely agree. And would you say that financial institutions have been failing vulnerable customers in recent times? And if so, I mean, what do they need to change to ensure they understand the needs of vulnerable customers and what should they be doing more of to protect them? Do you know what I think part of the problem is? I don't think anyone sets out to say, everyone I speak to, because I do a lot of work with companies that work in the space of identifying financial vulnerability, there is tech out there that can do it, uh, particularly if you have open banking. It's not as difficult as you would imagine. And every time you speak to somebody, it's not like everybody says, no, we don't want to help these people. Of course they do. No one's really looking to harm people. But depending on the size of your financial institution and the way you're set up with technology, Data, which is there, and they have the data on your accounts, is siloed. And so one side doesn't know in my credit card what's happening in my current accounts. And if I'm not using open banking and sharing my account information, I could be using a credit card from another bank to send money to somebody who's scamming me. But you won't see that in my current accounts. You'll just see the payments in my current account changing if that's where I'm paying the credit card from. But you won't know it. So the disconnect between the siloed data streams is a problem. The other thing I think is, is listen, when you see somebody, if you look at their account behavior and you see something's difficult, if you then refer them to the right place to get help, a citizen's advice or someone like that, if you're not following that up, you're just mentally going, I've done what I'm supposed to do. I've made an effort and I'll park that over there, and then I'll check their account in six months or so. Well, by that time, something else horrible could happen. So that monitoring bit is not there. I do think when you're reporting to the FCA, you know, if you've got to put a resilience plan in, if you've got to put an ISO plan in, if you also have to do this, and at the time you're thinking, well, will they push the deadline out? Am I just going to wind up paying fines? Where is this in the priority stack? I see this sometimes financial vulnerability as a precursor to fraud and some of the instances we spoke about. Fraud is a massive problem in this country. And now some of the things around fraud where you're going to have to make the repayments to the consumer as the financial institution, it started and it's in further discussion. That should make you stand up and say, okay, maybe I look at this as a vulnerability to fraud situation and or as an ESG emphasis on S. And I should start looking at things that I can do in this place. Now, whether that's employing the technology, there is, as I said, this technology, one of the companies I work with uses neuroscience, behavioral science, and transactional data to predict default or delinquencies a good six months before they might happen with a traffic light system. And then that way, that is using open banking, that way you can actually reach out in the suitable way to that customer. Obviously, if you're in the green, amber, red, by red, it's a personal call. So there's that. There's also training. You can train your all of your staff from the call center all the way through to recoveries, for example, on 
what to look out for, what, how you can change the products and the services, how can you adjust your communication, um, how can you have peer learning within your group so that people who have been with the organization for a longer time, who've seen more, can help the people who are coming in who are new maybe and who may not have seen as much. Because let's face it, it can be very emotional as said for people who are the front line of this, very difficult conversations. So the tech and the training, and I think constantly reviewing what you have in place and pushing that up and down in the organization so that you get the buy-in from senior people to enable you to actually make these, make it a priority. Because I said, it's not, I think in the past, before the FCA said, no, you've got to show us first, it's not good enough to just pay the fines. You just pay the fines. Now it's the tables have turned and there really is a, more of a demand on people. When I speak to people, I don't, like I said, I don't think anyone's saying I want to harm people, but I think they are conscious of the fact that everyone from that first call center all the way through to the later teams where you're looking at eviction notices and things like that needs to be involved, needs to be educated. You need to look and see how technology might help. Now, I've spoken to vulnerability teams. I've spoken to customer service teams. I've spoken to risk teams. I've spoken to ESG teams. This might help as well if somebody would just designate a couple of people to say, these are the people you need to speak to if you want to help us get this right. But we have a big problem with the data, siloed data, because you, we all know the data is there. The data is, if you want to see my transactions or you want to see erratic behavior in my account, you can see that, but it's maybe sitting over there. And what's the mechanism for you to bring that to my attention in a timely way so that then we can do something else? Excellent. Yeah. And so, I mean, moving on to the consumer duty, then the FCA has obviously introduced aiming to, to raise the bar when it comes to ensuring consumer protections in financial services. What's your take on that? And how much of an impact do you think the consumer duty will have in ensuring that financial institutions provide inclusive and safe products and services? It's difficult because I want to believe that I'm not normally like this. I'm usually the biggest cynic, <laughs> cynic around. I've been around for decades, she says. Yeah, so usually there's an element of cynicism in my thought process. I think, I don't think they're going to get it. Look, I don't think we got it right on the 31st of July. I don't think it's going to be perfect, you know, in the next six months. I think this is a work in progress. I think it's great that everyone has to do something or continue to do something in a more meaningful way. I actually think if you look at it, although it's the time to look at a product and say, well, how can we reconstruct this? Or how can we change this so that it can be responsive? In the long run, I think it's good because the more you can do that for a customer and actually make that more personalized to them, the more you will engage them and recruiting a new or finding a new, or acquiring a new customer is more expensive than keeping the one you already have and being able to sell them other things or to upsell them other things so it will benefit people. I just think this is a mountain to climb right now and people really need to be looking at the tech and the training simultaneously because there are solutions that plug in quite easily, like integrations within weeks, not months, and not expensive really, where you can get some help for yourself. LABF, we have the financial vulnerability training which I created and introduced not too long ago, actually, because I thought, look, I'm not, I'm speaking to people individually, but there must be a way to get to a wider audience. And at the moment we're doing it in more like a, a closed group custom or bespoke way where you can bring your own examples to the training, which is really helpful, but that will, as we go forward, we'll do that more self-serve with a more 
you know, with examples that are real examples, anonymized, but also more in your own time frame to be able to access the training. It's not unusual for someone to have been scammed a hundred thousand pounds and for their children to live miles and many miles away from them, for example, and not realize it until there's an eviction notice on the house. So the example of somebody whose wife passed away, he used to be an engineer who likes to be online. So he's always doing stuff online. Something comes up on social media, someone who looks like it might be a good fit for them. They get into this discussion about family, et cetera, et cetera. Money starts going towards that person because they're in a relationship. They're possibly lonely or they've had a bereavement. As I said, it's one of those four pillars that we mentioned before. That's not difficult to imagine that could happen. So I would urge people not to ignore it for another six months or another year. But I think it is going to take another six months to another year for it to actually start making a difference. Exactly. And I mean, do you think that with the consumer duty now that financial institutions have a clearer understanding of what's expected of them when it comes to meeting the expectations around here? I think, and just yesterday, there was another little video that came out from the FCA, um, which is great to watch. And they're trying to be really clear and they've had information sessions and you can find this information everywhere. I think the problem starts, if we roll it all the way back, as you know, we discussed, is what is financial vulnerability is the first thing. And if you have 30,000 employees or 15,000 employees or 20,000 employees, or investors and people, there used to be this mark that you would go for as, as an organization where everybody in the organization would be pulling together. And from the receptionist to the chairman working for the consumer, I feel like everyone needs to understand what financial vulnerability is. Firstly, because still got the misconception of the old person, I'm sure of it, or the unwell person or the person who's had a trauma and they're not our mainstream or our colleague or somebody, you know, because it can happen to anybody. That's a problem. And I think they're going to nail that. And then I think everyone understands, oh, I need to communicate better. I need to take the jargon out. I need to stay in touch with people more. I need to have some kind of monitoring system that is digital. I need to have a way to watch patterns and to be able to use technology to alert me to the fact that there's something I should be talking to that person about. How can I check in? Is it a little video that pops up on their online banking? Just the topic that might use it, of course, go back to old AI and machine learning that might be appropriate for them. Or is it, I'm just sending everybody a financial health review as a reminder for them to engage with us. There's subtle ways that you can do that. But I think the bigger problem right now is I don't think FGN stands for financial vulnerability means. Mm, and I mean, do you think that financial institutions then need to be more proactive then, I guess, when it comes to understanding what financial vulnerability is and, and what they can be doing to help? Yeah. And I can understand this. There's probably like a tendency or at least the feeling to go, what we're doing everything to enough to satisfy the FCA. We might be doing things where we can tick off a box and say, yes, that's FCA, we're doing this at a very basic level or a very minimal level. But I praise the financial institution that wants to go beyond that and look at this more holistically and understand how it then it's win, win, win all around. But that needs to be led by somebody that says, okay, we make it's making it a priority and all the benefits are there. So I don't see why it shouldn't be a priority, but sometimes we need a disaster to show people that they need to move it up the scale. And the central theme of the consumer digital regulation is good customer outcomes. What kind of specific outcomes then would you expect and hope to see from this? I guess, I mean, so we go back to the fact that we're trying to prevent harm 
for them, right? For consumers. We're trying to give them products that are at the point of signing up and acquiring them appropriate for them and going through their life cycle are also appropriate for them. So that would be something that I think would benefit. If I took out a mortgage, it's a long thing, isn't it? It's a, for most people, it's getting longer now. Over the life cycle of a long product like that, to make sure, and also given what's happening, for example, with interest rates right now is a good example. They've stayed the way they have been for a long time, very low. Is this the right product for me this year, five years from now, 10 years from now? How do you stay on, on top of it with me to make sure that, because I could either refinance, switch to a new one. I could leave you and move to another organization, which is not obviously the desired outcome. Put certain that, as we see now with mortgage relief, you put things on interest only for a while, put certain things on hold, take a holiday. That's a good example of the reaction to making sure that a product is fine for me when I first sign up for it and through my life cycle as well. And that recognizing what channel that I really want to be communicated with, is it digital? Is it in the branch, which we have very few of now, or a pod or another hub or somewhere because that some people still, especially when it's difficult, want to see a human being. Making your chatbots as good as they can be, because that's also great for housekeeping, but it's not great for difficulties, but that can take some of the difficulty initially out of the journey. So it's those things of saying, okay, and again, if I tell you, and I think that's the dialogue that I have lost my job or I've lost a big contract, or I'm going through a difficult time because I'm having to move house uh, because I've separated or I've divorced or my family situation has changed. You need to be asking me the questions that are or looking at how this is going to impact my financial products and then doing something proactively to change them for me before we get to the point where the bank becomes a, a real estate agent, which they don't want to be in that case. We know that mortgage defaults or delinquencies, they're hovering at something, I think around 800, 750,000, something like that at the moment, which you know may not be that different to what it was in times gone by. But with the new group of people coming out, for example, who are going to have mortgage rates change significantly, those people should all be in contact with already to say, it shouldn't have taken somebody corralling all the CEOs of banks and saying, you must do something for the people on the mortgage side and savings, as opposed to just raising the rates. Because all these 1.5 million people are going to come off these fixed rates and they're going to go from 1% to 7%. It will be a shock. I'm fortunately ancient enough to remember when it was 15% when I had an early mortgage. Right? But that's not for people who have been used to having very low interest rates at the same time as you have a difficult economy. So everybody there are perfect examples of where people could have reached out early to make sure the products were right for them, to monitor how they're going, to find out if they're having difficulties with their work finances, for example, because if you lost your job at the same time as your mortgage rates going up, these are not difficult concepts to understand. So I think there are things that can be done, some more easily than others proactively, but again, the technology is going to help everybody. Just to round things off another, I mean, what are some of the positive actions then being taken at the moment by fintechs and financial institutions that have caught your eye and trying to alleviate this issue? And are you positive that it can be tackled effectively going forward? There are people doing some training, which is great. As I said, we at LIBF, we have training and I can see there are other folks out there who work with the vulnerability registration organizations and people like that who are work fan for all finance. There are a number of people out there who are working towards raising awareness and providing supports for potentially financially vulnerable customers. So I think people are doing things. I think there's, there's 
the discussion is happening because of what well, was happening because of the 31st of July deadline with the FCA. So I know it's, and I know I've seen vulnerability teams form in financial institutions. I know some people are working, for example, with the Samaritans or other organizations like that, looking at mental health issues and being able to recognize that. I feel like that is a lot of pressure to put on someone who's picking up the call center call or who's working in a branch or who is my manager. I'll be honest, there's no easy way for them you know, to always understand it. They need help and support as well. So I think the training for them and the internal support, if they need time as well, because some difficult things can happen, you need to process as well. So I see some things happening. I see some people using technology, not enough. I see some people saying to me, well, that would be really great. I'm not sure that I, it would work with my platform or I'm not sure that I want to do it right now. It's an extra P or two P over here on every transaction. And I'm thinking, man, this is so simple. Stop making excuses. It's like people can't help themselves. They're waiting for the disaster. And then they'll do something about it. And that is a problem with financial services. This is like trying to let them self-regulate in certain areas. Really? So I fear that something is going to happen that's going to be horrible. And we're all going to see it on the news. And then everyone's going, oh, you know, maybe all these things that have been in front of me, I should do. There are plenty of reg techs out there. There are plenty of, and as I said, it's on the spectrum I see it as the precursor to fraud. So if you're working with folks who are doing credit risk analysis, as well as fraud detection, vulnerability is the thing that's happening earlier on. So if you can identify it early enough on, you'll avoid some of the scam and other problems. You'll make them included in some more financial opportunities. And also you'll be able to, it will benefit everyone financially as well as the customer. So I'm not in the positive camp all the way here. I think people are going to wait for something horrible to happen. Well, hopefully we can get enough people listening to this podcast to, to heed your warning then. It's not that hard. That's the other thing. This is not that difficult. It's kind of like when you look at the things they're asking, the FCA is asking people to do, it's just good practice. And from a training point of view, I mean, look, our training is CPD accredited for those in the UK. Everyone benefits. The more knowledge you have, the more confident you feel, the more able you are to help. I'm not saying you can solve every situation. And I'm not saying that some of it isn't very difficult. It is. And more than we probably realize, people are in complex situations as well. Every time I watch something on the NHS and I think, gosh, all those doctors who are protesting, whatever you feel about that, for the last few years, they have been under intense pressure, life and death. There must be thousands of people who want a break and are not also feeling like they have enough finances. They could be in the same vulnerability, even though they have jobs for life type thing. They could be in the same vulnerability bucket as somebody else who's suddenly unwell and who they've been treating. So I don't think it's as rare or unusual as people think it is, but definitely we've got to move people away from thinking it's just older people. Yeah, they're part of it and they're being scammed terribly right now. There's a lot of scam and abuse, but it's much wider than that. Thanks again so much for coming to the podcast and chatting with us this week, Ellen. To close out our podcast, we have our now infamous fintech jails. This is where we ask for an industry term, buzzword or trend you've seen or heard enough of. So Ellen, what's your selection for this week? My word, disruptive. <laughs> nice. <laughs> and I could take myself all the way back to 2012 with this one. Drives me nuts. 
Firstly, why does everything have to be disruptive? Why can't it just be a better version of what it was? But in our fintech world, we have to have the noise and the big drum roll. We are disruptive. And I'm like, long enough for the noise. You get your point across and everything that happens in fintech today might not be here next year. I think everyone's got to step back and have a, a sense of, okay, that's the noise. What's the reality? So were neo banks disruptive? Not really. And I love some of the people who have set them up and some of them have done very well. But if I go back to the earlier version, some of them are profitable now, a few. Many of them have fallen to the wayside. Did I need another current account? Not really. It wasn't disruptive. It was banks make money by taking money in and lending money out when you have a banking license. It's very expensive. You have to put money aside for defaults like we've been talking about. You know, there's lots of things you have to do. But it wasn't disruptive. And I don't know why anybody thought it would be. So people are looking at valuations dropping or banks closing or being acquired. And I'm like, what were you expecting? Anyway, things like buy now, pay later. Was that disruptive? When I was 16, which was a very long time ago, I remember buying my first dress on layaway, as we called it, which wasn't digital. It was for physical, bring the dollars in, put them on the table, come back when you put all the dollars down. Not instant gratification. It's a feature. And now that it's being regulated and those valuations have dropped and there's a lot of some acquisition going on there. Also, we're seeing people use buy now, pay later for their weekly shop. And we're seeing a younger generation get into debt. Again, I'm going, this was not disruptive for me. This was disruptive. I think of it changes a business model for a sector or for a part, for a vertical. And so, yes, sometimes there is that genuine disruption. And also it makes... It's, I look at disruption as positive in the consumer's life. I want it to be a positive thing for me. So I think what is disruption? And I need to look at it as actually changing something. I like to see disruption, for example, in SME funding. And I've been yucking on about the B2B embedded finance area for years, right? And of course, we look to small businesses to be turning the corner for anything that's bad in the economy. So we need to support them. Now, if I take buy now, pay later, and I put it in a B2B environment for the merchants as well, then I feel like there's a bit of disruption there. But it's like the word that everybody pulls out when they ever create anything that's a feature. It's disruptive. Not really. It doesn't have to be either. It just has to be better or yeah. <laughs> improved. Yeah, I'm firmly on board with this one. I think I, I get a lot of uh, press releases come through into my inbox that have got disruptive written all over them. And then sometimes it's like you say, it's, you know, it's, it's great, it's innovative, but disruptive seems like it's to the next level, right? But I mean, do you think that we've actually had an innovation in recent times and it counts as truly disruptive? I mean, I know generative AI has been kind of springing around at the moment, but is, is financial services really got the, the killer use case for that yet? But what do you think on that? Yeah, it's interesting, obviously, from the education side. For financial services, I guess the evolution of it to where, firstly, there's a problem with who's screening out the bad data and those people who are physically watching things that they should not be seeing for nine hours a day. How do we start to actually weed out the bad stuff? Of course, there's always that example of like, if you're going to use it, you should check your facts before you share them with people as well. We're doing that thing of not doing due diligence again, and we have that problem in fintech and financial services. So maybe this is also a good reminder for us to see the value in it. So I think for us in financial services, any kind of AI that gets to know us and then presents things to us or predicts where we where might be useful for us needs to be a bit tempered, but I think it's ultimately, it can be a helpful tool. 
accident. And just to confirm, I'm more than happy to throw disruptive straight into the jail. We'll be disruptive about that. We'll put it in the jail. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, usually what I ask at this point is, would we bother replacing it with anything? But I think really it's just a, more of a case of we don't just stop using it for every small innovation that we get by just save disruptive with the truly disruptive stuff, right? Yeah, I would agree with that. I think we need to go back and look at our... Um... It's just like people saying things are huge. How can everything be huge? <laughs> Some of them are bigger than others, right? Yeah, I agree. Well, that's all we have time for this episode. Thanks, of course, to Helen for joining me. As for Fintech Futures, you can find us online at www.fintechfutures.com, on X, the app formerly known as Twitter, at Fintech Futures, and, of course, on LinkedIn. If you like this podcast and our other episodes, you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, or your favorite podcasting service to get notified about future episodes. Thanks as well to Arama for editing this podcast. You can check them out at arama.tv. As always, thank you very much for your support. We'll see you soon for another episode of What the Fintech. But until then, goodbye. Goodbye.